Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We were going to interview the chairman of the Federal Reserve today, but he got pulled away to look at banking matters <laughs> or something like that. Oh, come on, But Howie. we do have a real surprise for our <laughs> listeners. Harlan Krumholtz, this is your life. Oh, you know how reluctant I am to do this, uh, focusing I on do, you. I do, I yeah. do. And, and I think it's hard to do, but but let, let's do this to oh see my gosh. a lot of listeners right. judge. So, Anyone listening to them, I'm, re I'm reluctantly being pulled into this. We have these periodic yeah. uh, sessions where we don't have a, a guest scheduled, and Howie and I usually just you know schmooze, discuss articles, talk about We decided about that mutually that this would be good for our I, listeners to know a little I more about I think he decided, so. Howie decided yes. individually, and I've been dragged I, along into this. So I just want to I, say, I, I want to make sure that's clear happens. from the outset. But I did interview you. We did We did have a great interview with you. So I thought- That's okay. true. That's right. And that was a while ago. So here it we got to get fair. you in. So it only seems fair. Harlan Krumholtz is a cardiologist and Harold Hines Jr. Professor of Medicine and the founder and director of the Yale Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, or CORE. And I want to just stop there because he's so much more than his titles, of which there are many, many, many. But there are a few objective measures that I think our listeners should, should contemplate here. He has over 1,400 scientific publications, and by some measures, over 2,000. He has been cited by scholars a whopping 300,000 times. 300,000 times scholars have referenced his paper. And without I think, that, I think that's time my mother. She just keeps doing it over and over and over. Uh, uh, shh. <laughs> without spending too much time explaining this, his H index, which is a me measure of not just how productive someone is, but how much attention they draw to their research is approaching 230, which is exceeded by just a few clinician scientists in the world and his tops at Yale. Making this all the more extraordinary is that he remains a practicing physician, one of the most sought after mentors for undergraduates, graduate students, and faculty. And being sought after is one thing. He actually delivers in all categories with a long list of accomplished scholars to his mentoring credit. He is one of the most forceful advocates for open science and for patient empowerment, and one of the earliest clinicians and scholars to see and apply big data and advanced analytics to answering some of the most challenging questions in healthcare. I could not begin to list the number of awards and honors that he has achieved, but suffice it to say that he is widely recognized as one of the leaders in medicine, health policy, and health services research, He's also an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur and wildly recognized as a compassionate caregiver and one who has and continues to be deeply committed to improving the lives of all people, regardless of their position in life. I first want to thank you for all that you do and for agreeing to do this as you are on the cusp of a very big birthday next week. So in advance from me and our listeners, I want to wish you a happy 25th birthday. You grew up in Dayton, Ohio the son of a practicing physician. When was the first time that you knew that you wanted to be a physician yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I had uh, a, a privileged position to be able to have a father who was a very caring and devoted physician and who from a very, from my very early age, you know, would take me along to the hospital. I mean, it's, it's sort of unthinkable these days that, you know, that somebody could bring a young kid into a into a hospital. But, you know, even from the time I was as small as I can remember, you know, he would take me on rounds with him on the weekend. And, 
and I would just follow him around and uh, and watch and learn. And you know, even at that time, I, I you know I was too young to think about what I was going to do with my life, but but I was uh, fascinated by the interactions between a doctor and a patient, and the means by which he was able to turn what could be a challenging and stressful interaction into one in which he really could bring out a smile in a patient, could really knew who those people were, could demonstrate his empathy and in, in caring for them, and use his brains to try to figure out how to help them. And so I never wanted to be anything else. I wonder about people who have to go through life trying to figure out you know, what fits them, because for me, it was just always that. And, and even to today, you know, it's all I want to be is, is a really good doctor. I want to help people. And, and that was where it started was when I followed him on rounds. And what, what got you to want to go to Yale as an undergrad? You majored in biology here. Tell me about the decision. And then what happened at Yale that might have impressed upon you what you could do with your life? Yeah, that was a really important juncture for me. I, I, as you said, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio. It was a great place. I went to public high school. I learned a lot of things in in that. You know, the the high school was very mixed. We were in the midst of integration. There was a highly controversial time in Dayton. You know, I, I was beginning to get my sense of the importance of social justice and being able to push lots of different issues that were being resisted in some ways in the in the community. The the high school about a third of people went to college and. You know, we didn't even have that. I remember advanced placement courses and so forth. But, but you know, it was a really good education and lots of good friends, and and it was a good environment to grow up. As I looked to go to college, I don't know. You know, I mean, I I guess I I wanted to try something different. And I, I go back. I tell people that you know, when I was growing up, we had these World Book encyclopedias. I mean, kids aren't going to know what what those Me are too. these days. Me but too. You did yep. so. So, you know, I yeah, used to flip ones. through the encyclopedia and there was this entry for Yale that had the Beinecke Rare Book Library and it had just this picture of the of the Rare Book Library. And I don't know when I saw that, you know, just flipping through that, I thought like that would be a great place to go. I mean, I applied broadly, but I felt so lucky uh, that I got into Yale. I'd spent a summer doing a high school summer science institute that the National Science Foundation had sponsored. And I think that might have given me an edge, but I just was really fortunate to get in. And and then I was surrounded by the most amazing classmates you could ever imagine who opened worlds to me that I hadn't been exposed to before. But boy, I had to work really hard, sort of keep up. It changed me in very fundamental ways in terms of what I thought I could do and, and what, you know, what the world was like. And so after that, you went off to Harvard Medical School and... Tell me what it was like to go from sort of the, I, I think of as less competitive environment at Yale to what has always seemed to be to be a much more competitive environment at Harvard Medical School, but that may be just my interpretation. Did, did anything change for you at Harvard? I know that Lee Goldman was an influential uh, physician and mentor there. Uh, how did that seem to you? What, what changed for you there? Yeah, let me just reflect one more thing about Yale, and then I'll tell you what the transition was like. You know, when I was Yale, I think one of the more important things I did was they had an internship program where you could apply and and go in the summer session and then take a semester doing you know some activity. They also had this opportunity to go to North Carolina and work in, with the Office of Rural Health Services and sort of be posted out in rural North Carolina, and that that really sort of opened my eyes to the 
vast variation in, in the way in which healthcare was delivered, the kind of health of people. I spent a lot of time in that semester going around just meeting with people, going to their their homes. I was invited in and and was able to hear what their concerns were about their healthcare. And that got me really interested in the sociology of healthcare, the way in which it's delivered, not just the basic science side, but the social science side and how it came together. And then there, there was just before I was fortunate enough to get into Harvard Medical School, which is just an amazing place. There were also had these traveling fellowships at Yale, which I applied for at the end of my senior year to be able to look more deeply at rural healthcare around the world. By the way, I didn't get any of those. But but there was an instructor, Ted Marmer, who had, was in the college and had gotten to know me. And he said to me, you know, I really like your proposal. What if I supported the Institute for Health and Policy Studies, IHPS? And he, he sort of sponsored me with a very modest amount of money, but with the moniker of a Yale traveling fellowship to look at rural health care at that time, 1980, 1981. I was able to go to England, Sweden, India, and China, China in 1981, to look at the way in which rural health care was being delivered. That also had this sort of profound influence on me because I began to realize that there were social factors that were influencing the organization of the healthcare delivery systems, which were very important influences in the, in the way in which people were able to achieve their health that was independent of their own behaviors and, and the, the underlying science that we knew in medicine. By the way, there's a thing where I got into Harvard Medical School and I told my mother I was going on this traveling fellowship and I'd have to reapply to medical school because Harvard wouldn't give you a deferral. They made you reapply. And wow. my mother almost my mother almost plots, you know, when I told her that. That but, has changed. Yeah. But but anyway, but when I came back, I was able to go. And I think I was, again, kind of had been changed in, in fun. I was much more grounded. I'd seen much more of the world. I mean, I hadn't I had a pretty parochial upbringing in Dayton. I, I hadn't seen very much of the world. And this year had given me a lot of different experiences. And and I didn't find Harvard Medical School competitive at all, actually. I found it very collaborative. And for me, I, I was searching for where I could end up in medicine, still thinking I was primarily going to practice, but thinking, you know, where would I where would I end up? And and I found I, I worked with people in the School of Public Health in Roxbury. I brought some of the things I'd learned abroad to try to build communities, the healthcare communities, learning communities within Roxbury housing projects and began to think, you know, that these things might interest me. One of the classes in medical school, my third year was taught by Barbara McNeil and Lee Goldman, two giants in the field of what really is sort of outcomes research or or clinical decision-making research. And I I, I sat in that class and I was just thought like, this is what I really want to do. Like these people are developing knowledge that can be directly applied in practice and policy in ways that can improve people's Outcomes. I wasn't even talking about it as outcomes research then, but but seeing like this is very pragmatic applied work that's very sometimes often very clever, and and taking a different frame on questions, and if we could channel our ability to generate that kind of knowledge, then we could fundamentally elevate our ability to help deliver the services, help inform the choices people make, and, and help shape the policies that would put us in a much stronger position than we were otherwise. It, and the the one thing about this, just to quickly say, is that because that was in a singular class, I always have deep respect for the ability of a teacher like you to be able to have a profound influence on a student, even in a one-time interaction. Because really, Lee came into that that class. Lee subsequently became dean of Columbia and worked in different places. But but Lee came in with a single lecture, and I thought like, I want to I want to learn from him. Yeah, you know. And yeah. Anyways, it can be a very powerful thing, even a, a very short-term interaction. 
So you and I have never talked about this before. It really was in preparing for this that I that I sort of honed in on some of these things. But you were at UCSF at the height of the AIDS crisis. You were practicing medicine when, for most people that looked at this population, all hope was lost. And you wrote what seems to be your first widely cited paper. You talked about community-acquired pneumonia and AIDS patients. And this was during residency. Very few residents really write a meaningful first-authored paper, but you did. Can you tell me about how that influenced your trajectory? Yeah, that was, I mean, again, another profound experience. I was engaged to the most amazing person I've ever met, Leslie, my wife, who I'm still married to. She's amazing. And we were were sort of trying to figure out where we wanted to do residency. A lot of my classmates, most of my classmates stay in Boston. And we thought Lee Goldman, again, my my mentor in medical school, had spent time at UCSF in residency and, and suggested I go out and take a look. I think he thought probably I wouldn't go, but I should just take take a look. Leslie and I went out. It was a beautiful weekend in San Francisco. We were just enamored by the environment and also the fact that that residency attracted people from all over the country. It was a really a big mix of, of individuals. And at that time, calling it AIDS epidemic, HIV, AIDS epidemic, we didn't even know it was HIV at the time. That was a place where that was happening. And it seemed like it would be an important opportunity to learn and to to help. It was heartbreaking. You know, there were so many people who were dying of, of lack of being able to breathe or, you know, having horrific other symptoms like diarrhea, skin lesions. I mean, the whole range of things. And and you really got to know these people. I mean, the best you could do was sit at the bedside and just comfort and learn from them. It was amazing. The, that paper was just a matter of seeing a lot of those patients and thinking like, oh God, we, so we've got to start describing this. And I, you know, I went to the medical record room and just was able to get permission to look at, you know, consecutive charts of people who had suffered this and try to summarize it. And and I think it was a time when I started feeling inspired by the ability to generate knowledge that other people could leverage. So 1992, you're doing a fellowship in cardiology at Harvard, the Beth Israel Hospital. And you're also doing a master's degree at the Harvard School of Public Health and Health Policy and Management. And you led a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on cost-effectiveness of streptokinase. This was a very important paper in arguably the most important journal in American medicine. And you, a fellow, not a faculty member, were first author. What was that experience like? Well, that was bracing. You know, I'd gone to, uh, actually came back to Boston because, you know, Lee had had recruited me back. Again, you know, the importance of mentors. You know, he had been a very important mentor and he, he, actually, for a moment, it looked like he was going to be chair of medicine at, at Beth Israel. So it it looked like it would be a place to be where he would help support me by helping to uh, allow me to to go get a degree while I was doing my fellowship and, and help me collaborate with him. I mean, teach me uh, about research. Uh, he ended up not getting that position at that time. Of course, he goes on to be chair of medicine at UCSF and dean of Columbia. I mean, he's got an illustrious career. But he he didn't retreat from that support of me. He was still at the Brigham. I was at the BI, but he was 100% supportive. And they have, at that time, clinical effectiveness course. You may know about this. There's a summer course at Harvard for people who are doing fellowships where it's a very intensive stats, epi, health policy, sort of like, you know, when we have the RWJ Clinical Scholars Program, you know, we try to put together. It's sort of similar. Lee was at Yale, as you know, Yale medical student. 
and uh, a, a loyal alumni alumnus of Yale. Uh, and I think maybe he saw some of that through what Alvin Feinstein had put together and Ralph Horowitz and I think brought it to Harvard and, and was able to build this course. That was amazing. In the course of it, you know, we were starting to learn to ask questions. There was this question about whether we should be using these clot busting drugs for older people with heart attacks. A lot of people said that the benefit, the relative benefit was smaller and the risks were higher in older people. They would be more likely to bleed and their benefit would be less, that the the relative reduction, the the that they would achieve. And I started thinking like, yeah, but their risks are so high from the heart attack. Even a smaller relative reduction in risk could could translate into a very large absolute benefit. That is 10% of a larger number, their larger risk of dying could translate into a bigger benefit and outweigh that risk by a long shot. Uh, One of the courses I was taking was one where we were doing modeling. And so we started doing simulations of this with different assumptions and was able to show that that this was a dominant benefit to older people and they shouldn't be excluded from the use of the drug obviously they should be informed of the risk but if they want to that, that this would be this is actually a great deal for them i mean it's a good treatment when i first went to lee by the way he taught me something when i first went to lee he, he wasn't really very excited about the idea and and was actually discouraged me from following it being how i am i'm sort of persistently pursued it anyway and, and eventually i got it back to him probably he wasn't wrong. I mean, my early ideas were a little crude, but by the time I I improved it, he got very enthusiastic about it. He helped add a cost-effectiveness side to it. Literally, wouldn't have been published without his help. He made all the difference. But it was really a, a nice. I always tell this to my students: if I'm not in favor of something, you're for. Don't take me as the gold standard. Keep working at it if you want. Keep trying another shot. Maybe it, maybe I am not seeing something. But anyway, that was a really important paper. It came out just as I was starting faculty at Yale in July of 92. And it was a great way to start start out on a faculty. Uh, Worth pointing out that your productivity during this time, like early at Yale uh, and, and so on, you are incredibly productive. And really, John Eisenberg, my, my mentor, my hero, a man who died way too young, about 21 years ago yeah, now, yeah. Um, like he was publishing at the same pace as you, but he was a full professor. He was, uh, I think, a section chief of general internal medicine. You were operating at that level at that time. In 2004, you collaborated with our upcoming guest, Carrie Gross, on a paper that was first authored by our nation's current Surgeon General. <laughs> it is one of your most widely cited papers. Current time, there's about 2,000 people that have cited that one paper. Tell us what you found there. Well, you know, thanks to me, Vic and Carrie, you know, that's a terrific paper. It was part of a theme of papers that was sort of looking at representation within some of the clinical research that we were doing. And, and you know, it, it, there's that paper, but there's actually a body of work. I mean, there are a couple of things. One yes. is you know, I mean, if I if I have a superpower, I think it's like I have lots of ideas. If I have another superpower, it's like I'm really, I mean, I'm lucky to be working with really great people. And I know that's not a superpower as much as it is just good fortune, but that, you know, really talented, amazing people around me. In this case, you know, these guys really powered this paper, but it was part of a, maybe like, I, I don't know, like 10 or 20 papers we'd written, which really characterized this sort of inherent bias in our system to exclude women or, or, uh, uh, maturitized populations. I mean, that that too often our research had been focused on white males and that, you know, we really needed to be attentive 
to the strategies that we were using that were recruiting people into these studies. And uh, yeah, that's that's highly cited. But like I said, there's also a big body of work that I'm really proud of that I think began the conversation nationally with others, with others about how, now we're still not there, by the way, we're not done with this, but it's, no, it's still but, like but a pathway. But you were early on. I will say when I go back and look and, and preparing for this, I went back and looked at a lot of what you did. You are years ahead of most other people in in hitting what I consider to be the most important topics. You were writing about health equity way more than 10 years before it became a topic that mainstream media was covering in a big way. And I think papers like that had a huge impact and they are rightly highly cited. Yeah, um, thanks, I, I, mean, I, I think we like, want... try to catalyze this stuff, you know. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying you were the first, but you were definitely yeah. on the leading edge of this. Um, I want to, we have a few more things I want to touch on now. We have limited time. In 2006, you were working with the current VASA president, Betsy Bradley. Uh, she was a, a relatively junior faculty member, mid level faculty member here in the School of Public Health, a very close friend to me and you. But you wrote an incredibly impactful paper on how to deliver better care to acute heart attack patients to use sort of colloquial language. A lot of research does not change practice, but this certainly seemed to, and it has over a thousand citations, a highly cited paper. When you look out there on the landscape now and see documented reduced mortality and better consistency in practice around cardiovascular care, are you able to sit back and reflect on what your role through this paper and so many others has been? Because I think it's incredible. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm most most proud of. I mean, we got an NIH grant to look at this issue of delays in treatment for patients with heart attacks. And we knew that it was a, a, a very difficult problem to solve nationally. There just were hours that would pass while people would sit in the emergency room before they would get definitive care for a blockage, you know, that was causing a heart attack that needed to be relieved. And, and we just started systematically learning what represented best practice. We start building out this idea of positive deviators. Who was actually excelling? What could we learn from them and how could we generalize it and scale it across the country? And this started from a very, you know, set number of studies to try to distill insights about top performers to ultimately a national effort that included over 2,000 hospitals around the country and got to the point where you can go anywhere with a heart attack and you're almost guaranteed to be treated within a half hour. Prior to that, it was 90 minutes to two hours that in general it was taking, and some people even longer. You know, And this was a tribute, by the way, not just to the research, but to the way in which the clinical community engaged at every level from electro, you know, people who are getting electrocardiograms, nurses, transport, cardiologists, and interventional cardiologists, emergency medicine docs, and, and more. And we, we did a whole bunch of cool things, How We like brought in NASCAR pit crews who would teach clinicians, no matter how good a driver you are, unless your pit crew is good, you're not going to win yeah. the race. So you can't be like a star interventional cardiologist without paying attention to your team, getting people all working together. I'll say one other thing about this with Betsy. She was, she is amazing. This was about also getting into mixed methods, quantitative research, and also hearing stories. Betsy was a, is a specialist in qualitative research. And we sort of brought that into what's called mixed methods. And Anyway, it was it was a terrific run and, and made a I, huge difference. I, I want our listeners to understand, though, that like it's not just about saving lives because you have saved a lot of lives with this. It's also even 
that even the lives that wouldn't have died, they would have lived with less heart muscle alive. They would have lived in less con uh, good condition. And because of the changes that have been implemented from that, we've really seen a dramatic improvement in cardiovascular outcomes, not just a reduction in death. Yeah, and so, this was also, uh, by the way, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology. American College of Cardiology in particular was a strong partner, but American Heart Association also contributed in Portland. I mean, this was a, a broad base of credit ought to go out here, but really proud of the work that we did to develop yeah. the science. So your work on avoidable readmissions, which maybe I'll, I'll let you explain to the audience, is incredible. Because again, I found over 100 instances of papers that include you as an author on this topic alone. Why has this been such an important topic for you? And what have we learned about this? Yeah, well, th there's this persistent issue of people who are hospitalized ending up back in the hospital within 30 days way too commonly. And and it's it's sort of mind-blowing. I mean, you know, within 30 days, maybe one in four people end up back in the hospital among Medicare beneficiaries. And even if you include it more broadly, it's still a high number. And the story goes, we were working with the federal government around trying to develop measures that we would publicly report that would start to draw light to the quality of care within the healthcare system. We had just worked on a measure on mortality, and it was being publicly reported, drawing attention to the variation within the country and the ways in which we could improve. And they said, like, we want you to maybe, how about if we start looking at cost? And we said, well, cost is a hard one because how do you know it, what the right number is? Some people are spending more money. Maybe they're getting better outcomes. It's worth it. And, and we had been doing work since the 90s on this idea of like really trying to draw attention to this readmission issue, which is largely ignored. By the way, when I'm a resident, you know, people are just talking about free. I hate to say this, but this is the kind of un disrespectful language we'd use. Frequent flyers. Oh, somebody's back again. That's right. You, you know, you, totally wouldn't, true. you wouldn't sit there and say this is in many cases a failure of the system. How did we help with the transition? What did we do to reduce the risk? We just were like, hey, so-and-so's back. You know, it, it's horrible. So so we were able to sell the idea to, to, to Center Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Medicare group, to be able to look towards readmission. And we also recognize that there was variation in readmission. And in one of the studies I'm most proud of, I'll just tell you this quickly, was we did a study of the same person going to a high-performing readmission hospital, meaning low readmission rates, and a low-performing readmission rate. So somebody admitted to two different hospitals in, within a very short period of time. What, what was the readmission rate at those two hospitals? And it turned out that same patient, you go to the, to the worst-performing hospital, you had a higher likelihood of being readmitted. And so we're kind of isolating this as actually a quality measure. And so a lot of this work has been both trying to understand what you can do to improve it, illuminating the variation and key factors associated with it, and trying to help us as a healthcare system make sure that people have better recoveries after they've been hospitalized. Can you quickly tell us, I know this has been controversial for some and I know that even your opinion about how do we judge this has evolved. Can you give our audience just a little bit of the nuance about why this isn't like a, a no-brainer to use uh, the term, uh, why it's not easy to judge a hospital based just on their readmission rate? Well, I mean, all, all the hospitals, you know, the hospitals get different sorts of patients. I mean, you know, and so... That has to do with their thresholds for who they're admitting, uh, where they're located, what kind of patient groups that they're they're caring for. 
And so you want to be fair to them. And so you want to be able to take into account the differences in the type of patients that come in. And, and this turns out to be challenging, you know, and, and it's, it's hard to know whether you've actually done it well enough. And so we've worked really hard to try to level the playing field to make these kind of fair comparisons. Now, some of the hospitals, and in particular safe net hospitals in this country, say, well, you know, people who are poor or minoritized populations have higher risks of readmission. We think that that's not our fault. You know, that has to do with the context of their lives, social determinants. And what I say is that, but we don't want to hide it, you know, by adjusting for those factors. We don't want to obscure it. Now, we may not want to, you know, we may want to figure out what our response ought to be as a society, but it's important for us to know whether or not there are certain groups that are subject to worse outcomes. And then we ought to be all holding hands and figuring out what to do about it. But yeah, th this turns out to be controversial because hospitals don't want to be judged on the readmission rates. And they want to say that it's not their responsibility. But I'll tell you one thing, during the pandemic, readmission rates went down. And so, you know, when without evidence of any mortality rise among those people who had a lower readmission risk. So it, it is modifiable, but it has to do with patient behaviors and also hospital strategies. I, I don't want to let the time run out without reflecting on the fact that, as you mentioned, you are a father, a husband, a grandfather, a son, and truly a great friend to me and many other people. You also work insanely hard. How do you find that balance? Yeah, that's really, uh, you know, a constant, a constant point of reflection. You know, I, I really enjoy my what I do. I don't even call it my work. You know, I really enjoy the, what, what I do. And uh, at the same time, I, I, what's enriching is in life are relationships. And, you know, you, you, you want to be sure you're attentive. When the kids were growing up, I mean, I wouldn't start working until they went to sleep. I mean, that might have been 10 or 1030. A lot of times I was up till two. I was tired. But, you know, I, I knew that, that that time of life would be short. And similarly with friends and, and investment and others, I mean, can always do better. But, but I always try to to believe that that's where the priority should be with regard to the work itself. Yes. I mean, it takes it same on you, you know, for a lot of us that there's a toll, you know, there's sometimes a toll that you get tired sometimes because of it, but you're also energized and enthused and we get to work with students and it's the best job in the world. And so, you know, it's, uh, I, I think the most important thing is to make sure that you're attentive enough to important relationships in your life. And then otherwise, you know, do the stuff that really jazzes you and gets you going. We've we've barely scratched the surface of your career, but hopefully this gives our listeners a little bit of uh, insight into Harlan Krumpholz uh, on the cusp of his 25th birthday. That's so nice. Yeah, I, I do. I do want to say one thing, though, that uh, in this era of my career, I'm really focusing a lot on data science, the digital transformation, how to turn medicine yes. in the next era in a way that's more effective, efficient, equitable, patient-centered, you know, and that we really produce better results for our patients. So that sometime we'll talk about that, but that's, uh, that's where the next horizon is, I think. I agree with you. And, and you really, you uh, walk the talk, as they say, you don't, you're really working on this on many different fronts. And I appreciate you personally a lot. Thanks so much, Howie. I, ho I hope at least one person found this interesting. Maybe my mother will when she, if she listens to it, but, uh, Thank you for doing it. Hi, You've Mom. been way too kind, and uh, but I do appreciate the opportunity to, to reflect a little bit on my career. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. 
I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I am fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu emba. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Jenny Tan, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing, and they make this program great. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks again for doing this, Harlan. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Howie. Really appreciate it.